0: Dagon's Illusion, Episode 35, The Dark Parade. Discovered among the papers in the tunnel behind the tiny door, on the envelope was printed, Letter of the Heretic. London, 18th of December, 1886. My dear Mr. Moon, by the time you receive this letter, I am certain that correspondence will have reached you from other members of our expedition. No doubt they will have warned you that I have gone insane and present the gravest danger to your person. Sir, nothing could be further from the truth. I beg you to withhold judgment until you have read and considered all that follows. Their intent is to murder and silence me, and barely have I escaped their vicious plans. I arrived in London a fortnight ago after the most harrowing passage. At this very moment my life is in peril, not only from the implacable enemy we confronted in Alamut, but from men I consider to be friends and colleagues, brothers of our sacred order. Even in London I have firm evidence that they seek my life. I cannot sleep more than a single night under one roof. My only hope is an appeal to you, sir. As Archon of the American Labyrinth, nay, more than appeal, I plead with you, I beg you for my life. Though we are not well acquainted, I believe you to be a man of utmost integrity, dedicated to the discovery of truth, wherever the path may lead. Is that not embodied in the second tenet of our laws? Therefore, I ask you to accept my report, disturbing though it may be, as from a younger brother equally dedicated to the discovery of truth. It is my firm belief that violent, evil men have infiltrated our fraternity and must be stopped. Herewith, then, I submit the following. As you are well aware, sir, I was invited to join the expedition for three reasons. My youth and superb athletic conditioning, my knowledge of Middle Eastern archaeology gained at Oxford, and my family's wealth. Indeed, Mr. Moon, as I am certain that you have been informed, over two-thirds of the cost of the expedition was borne by me alone. This I present as evidence of the seriousness of my commitment. The necessity of constant relocation prohibits me from rendering a full report of our activities. Certainly Hofstetter, with his usual officiousness, will have submitted such a report. In brief, let me state that our initial foray into the mountain brought unimagined success all went well and our team enjoyed the highest camaraderie until we opened the cavern believed to have been the actual living quarters of asan isaba the instant we broke through into that awful space a palpable change was felt by all almost as though a living darkness had descended upon us within that hour our camaraderie dissolved into fractious bickering and from there into murderous hate Upon first examination, the cavern of the old men of the mountain appeared empty. Unlike other caverns, within it were neither artifacts nor inscriptions. In consequence, it was our determination that the room had been misnamed on the map and was nothing more than a storage chamber. The walls, ceiling, and floor were of smooth rock without the slightest fissure or indentation. However, the following day we came upon a six-inch square by four-inch thick block of stone so perfectly fitted into a corner as to be invisible. How we were directed to it is a tale unto itself. In short, it was S.I. Hofstetter who dreamed of its existence. Upon removal of this stone, we discovered a hollowed-out niche within which was a single item. A small crystal urn with writing in an unknown script on the lid. The urn was filled with a noxious, powdery compound. Being our resident linguist, Hofstetter took control of the artifact, and the following morning presented a reading of the script. By his determination, the compound was that used by the old man to intoxicate his recruits, thereby opening their minds to the ecstasies of the Garden of Delights, which would enslave them to himself, turning them into his willing assassins. When pressed by me, Hofstetter was vague about how he had come to this reading Finally admitting that he had been guided to it in another dream. This caused a certain tension between us. Admittedly, in my criticism of his method, I was less than respectful. The words blathering idiocy may have been used. He informed me in no uncertain terms that his translation, that is how he began to portray it, could be trusted implicitly, and that in fact in the dream he had been informed of additional visionary uses for the compound. After all that has befallen us, it is my firm belief that the urn and its contents were a hellish trap into which we fell, or rather, into which we were guided. Mr. Meyer, from the moment Hofstetter exposed his revelations, I cannot describe the evil that took control of our minds. Dark fantasies seemed to shimmer on every wall. We began to see each other as twisted ravenous souls motivated by the vilest corruptions. All trust vanished, yet still there was much work to do that called for the closest cooperation. In addition, there were indications that new enemies were about to fall upon us. There was a sense of great urgency and impending doom. It was Hofstetter who suggested that use of the compound might speed our work through visionary guidance. For some insane reason, the others agreed. It was Bracebridge's recommendation that since I was young and strong and the most physically able to bear such a rigor, the test of the compound should fall to me. I responded that since he was the oldest, the weakest, and the least likely to survive through the whole adventure, it was logical that the risk be borne by him. And so the bluster went, concluding with my absolute refusal to participate in any such test. Little did I know what they were planning. In that evening's meal the poison was concealed in my food, and within the hour I began to feel its nightmarish effects. Sir, need I tell you the intensity of my rage? Even more infuriating, the traitors heaped unctuous apologies upon me, claiming that there was no other alternative. Apparently there was a portion of the dream that Hofstetter had failed to communicate in my presence. Whatever demon of hell had entered his sleeping state claimed that the only way to discover the hidden treasure of the mountain was to follow the path revealed through the door of the soul. For which, the compound was the only key. Together, they had conspired to make me their unwilling oracle. Within a few minutes of ingesting the poison, horrors beyond description began to descend upon me. I saw the mountain as the mouth of hell, into whose stygian depths I was being dragged never to rise again. In my terror, I did something that I had not done since boyhood. I cried out for help to Jehovah, pleading to him for my soul. Is it not amazing how in the blackest hour, our sophistication leaves us and we revert to childlike simplicity? As soon as I had cried out, I fell into a seizure and then it began. Insensate though I was to this world, my consciousness was fully awake in another. Mr. Moon, The experience that I am about to relate was as real as anything ever encountered in all my life. Nay, dear God, more real. Was I given a vision? Yes, but not the one intended. What I saw had nothing to do with the secrets of Alamut. A far vaster truth was vouchsafed to me. Here is what opened before my eyes. I found myself flying through black churning clouds that reeked with an unimaginable stench. When they parted, I was high above a monstrous city with buildings so tall and formidable that I was filled with awe. No city of its kind exists in our world or ever has existed. Within it was represented every form of architecture from the hovels and palaces of the Orient to pyramids of glass and majestic iron pinnacles that raked the heavens. Spread out before me were all the cities that have ever been or ever shall be, woven by a mighty hand of darkness into one endless mass, and swirling above it were magnetic winds that slashed the crowds with auroras of fervid light. As I descended, I began to hear a slow pounding beat so deep and majestic that the air trembled and the very bones of my body were shaken. Soon I was between the highest buildings. To my surprise, below me all the streets were empty. Conveyances of every sort lined the curbs, from horses and carriages to odd vehicles that looked like the product of wild dreams. But nowhere were there people. The thundering beat grew ever louder. Suddenly there came a mighty roar. Through no will of my own, I flew around a corner and found myself above a spectacle so strange that my heart quakes at the recall. Beneath me was a very broad avenue that stretched to the horizon, and for all of those many miles it was lined with humanity. Millions upon millions were gathered in fevered expectation. Descending farther I hovered just above them. Then, God help me, I saw that for which they had congregated crawling slowly down the avenue. Filling it from curb to curb staggered the initial phalanx of a mighty army. As their right feet struck the ground they stomped. It was this that caused the thundering vibration, though I have called it an army. Do not think that these were disciplined soldiers in crisp uniforms. Dear heaven, no. It was a horde of execrable savages. Their clothes had been ripped to shreds, their heads were covered with ashes, and their bodies with blood. Every man's face was skewed upward, as though caught in a mindless trance of hate. Each carried a short length of chain, with which he flagellated himself every time he stomped. It was the sight of them that had made the crowd erupt in cheers. A thousand passed this way, shredding their backs to the bone. My senses reeled. What was I seeing? What did it mean? But I had little time to contemplate. After the first thousand, there came another. These wielded razors, and with them they lacerated their own flesh, opening huge wounds that gushed blood. Many fell dead, and were tromped into piles of bloody meat, which only made the crowd cheer louder. These were followed by yet another thousand, who would march ten paces, leap into the air, then drop and pound their heads on the cement. In this manner dozens dashed out their brains, while others staggered with their skulls broken and oozing. If, perchance, one should fall among the bystanders, he was bludgeoned to death with the utmost ferocity. From thence the horde grew wilder still, and the watching millions began to chant with such passion that I thought the buildings would fall. Down the avenue poured thousands of men carrying huge idols. Surely all the gods that have ever been worshipped were represented there. As they passed, devotees in the mob would scream their deity's name in sob in ecstasy, throwing flowers and money and precious jewels To be trampled in the slime. One cannot describe the twisted visages of this endless mass of statuary, the physical aberrations, the grotesque monstrosities blending man and beast, the soul-crushing lust and torment and rage carved in gold and silver, wood and stone. How the mob loved these refugees from the shrines of hell. After them, came a mass of men carrying a huge black cube of polished rock which caused the greatest shrieking adulation. Hanging from its sides were long clusters of severed heads like grapes on a bloody vine. Upon this reeking monolith stood executioners with an endless supply of victims. Every second swords flashed, adding to the vineyard of dangling gore, and with each new severed head, the mob screamed louder. Trailing after this, evil monument, were swooping, leaping dancers. Between them they juggled huge balls of burning pitch, throwing them high into the air like little suns. When caught, the pitch seared their bodies, causing them to scream in agony. But they would not stop until they were consumed. Just as one was about to fall in self-immolation, another dancer would rush forward to take his place. Thus piles of roasting flesh littered the avenue, and the stench of burning meat wafted to the sky. This hellish dance caused many in the crowd to fall into swoons of ecstasy. Mothers cried out, pushing their sons into the street to join and burn alive, though I did not think it possible. From this moment, the insanity grew worse. There came a thousand marchers who did not injure themselves. They flayed the person in front of them with butcher knives carving off huge sections of flesh from backs and buttocks, slicing fat from muscle and muscle from bone, then throwing the bloody pieces to the crowd. These were eaten with epicurean delight, and the street was a river of gore. When the butchers had passed, there rose the greatest cheer of all. What I saw made me sob with such rage and revulsion that I despised my own membership in this rashed race. Toward me came a mass of bloody monsters rest in soft flowing robes whose only task was the murder of children and each specialized in a different manner of execution. From all along the street parents threw their little ones out to die. I cannot and will not describe what I saw. The screams and terror I shall take to the grave and with each murdered child the frenzy grew almost as a reward for this vile butchery. There came idols, both male and female, with huge breasts and tongues and phalluses. These were transported on litters. When the mobs saw them, men and women rushed out and climbed over the backs of the bearers so they could copulate with the statues in orgies of unspeakable degeneracy. As the hordes watched and screamed, they began duplicating these filthy acts with each other in ever-increasing passion finally ripping and clawing their human partners, biting off masses of flesh and gouging out eyes. My screams added to theirs as I cried out to God to kill me so I would not have to witness any more of such horror. But he refused to answer my prayer. Slowly those who were left alive joined with a great march until everyone was staggering and slithering down a river of gore. But where were they going? What mouth of hell would open to receive such vileness? I found myself flying above them. Suddenly, I heard a massive roaring cry as though the heavens had opened and the gods of thunder had descended. Ahead appeared a stupendous building of a magnitude far greater than any that I had seen. It was an amphitheater of unimaginable proportions that would have dwarfed the Circus Maximus in ancient Rome. The marchers were pouring into it through a monstrous gate and I traveled with them. Upon entering, I stared in amazement. Gathered within this amphitheater was a vast sea of people of every race and nation and tongue, for there were other gates that had opened to other parading mobs. As the crowds filled the stands, there began such howling and screeching and wailing as I can only imagine would come from the lowest circles of hell. My feet touched the ground in the middle of the arena. All around me towered the immense building packed to the skies with a shrieking human mass. As the bloody millions poured in, the vast space around me was jammed until there was not an inch between the reeking bodies. In the center of the arena stood a wide platform covered with people. I heard human voices ring out louder than any voice could possibly speak. Then there flashed to life an unimaginable vision. The people on the platform were small and because of the vastness of the building could hardly be seen, but suddenly images of them appeared on what could only be described as living walls of color that hung high along the rim. The loud voices echoed in dozens of languages leaving the crowd in chants. I heard English, French, German, Dutch, Russian, Swedish, Arabic, Hebrew, Farsi, and many, many more. I believe that all the languages of the world were represented after the hordes had crowded in. Last of all came the idols, and when the people saw them they went wild. Devotees of one god began crashing against those of another, until mighty waves of humanity were smashing across the vast space in frenzies of ecstatic rage. Horrendous acts were the order of the moment. No perversion, rape, or murder did not find its expression in the mob. Thousands of little children were thrown from the highest ramparts I watched them fall like human rain. Then finally when all the idols were gathered, the gates were closed. Then a single voice roared out, calling the execrable murderers to worship. Together they began to sing dark fury and madness. The song swelled upward like a mighty ocean. With greater and greater power it roared to the sky. I felt it rolling outward. In my mind I saw it covering the earth crushing every city, causing the mountains to fall, opening the deeps. As I listened, terror gripped me, for in the singing a devil god beyond all others began to form. The sky darkened and stars appeared. Deep within the firmament I saw the vast shadow of a serpent, twisting, turning, descending in their orgy of worship, copulating with their song. Upon the multitude his sperm fell like burning rain, and every drop was a spirit of the vilest evil. Singing their rapture, the vast horde gave themselves to this deity, desiring nothing more than to be raped, mutilated, and consumed. And where was I in all of this? Over me came such a detestation of humanity as I have never known, to the point that I hated my own flesh. Within this arena, I saw the whole world for what it was, the grand civilizations, the edifices of culture, of progress, of enlightenment, of knowledge, all, all, were delusions. All were mountains of dung, heaps of excrement, rivers of filth, oceans of vileness so vast that they rolled beyond the shores of time. Beneath the vain shroud of moral sophistication lay the rotting, stinking corpse of humanity, forever unchanged, ever waiting to rise from its ancient tomb and become again the raging, ravenous beast. In my revulsion, I lusted for humanity to be destroyed, for this filthy race of plague-ridden vermin to be slaughtered down to the last evil soul. I thirsted for fire to rain down and cleanse the earth, to sear the flesh of mankind into the tiniest cinders and myself among them. This was the hunger that burned within me like acid in my very bones. Perhaps their hellish god would do it. Perhaps that was why he was raining down. I longed, I shrieked for the end of all being. But suddenly there was a blinding flash and the great twisting serpent flows in the sky. Above the vile horde appeared blazing words in crimson. It was for all of these that Jesus Christ died. And above the words loomed a terrible, blackened, blood-drenched cross. So staggered was I that I fell to the ground in unspeakable horror. Lies, reeking aberrations! The words crushed me as though beneath an iron fist. I refused to believe them, I damned them, I despised them. For to believe them would mean that all my righteous hate would go unassuaged, my thirst for retribution, my desperate hunger to annihilate this race that had befouled the earth. Unfair, unjust, insane! For all of these, Jesus Christ died? Never! There could be no such mercy. I would not allow it. Not for this vast horde of shrieking murder, this endless river of human shit! Croaking and gagging at the hideous chimera of undeserved redemption, my eyes were darkened and the cursed vision disappeared. When I awoke, the fools of the expedition were gathered around me expecting an oracle. Ha ha! I gave them one, but not the one anticipated like Balaam out of me spewed words that were not my own. I told them that we were lost, that all the rigor of endless initiations, the blather of screaming incantations, of Luciferian illuminations, could not outweigh one splinter of Jesus Christ's hideous bloody cross. Thinking that I had become a raving lunatic, my comrades bound me hand and foot and imprisoned me in the old man's chamber. But ha-ha, again! I escaped both them and their hellish mountain. Shortly thereafter, our enemies arrived and wreaked on my faithful comrades God's own vengeance. Alone and raging, I tore my way back to civilization. Since that day, more visions have come. I have seen the crucified and how I hate him. He is consuming my soul with his devouring mercy piercing me with a thousand daggers of grace. I hate him, yet I cannot hate him without despising my own existence. I hate him, yet in the hating of him, I damn the hope that insists on rising with each morning sun. My pride is crushed, my arrogance defeated. All that is left me is a sniveling, childish fury. My vaunted resources are crumbling beneath the onslaught of a terrifying love. What is the end to be? Though I fight against it, joy seeps in around the edges. Soon I will be drowned in that glistening crimson flood. Horrified beyond imagining, I find myself thirsting to be drenched in the blood of God. And with that drenching, as a member of this vile race, to be redeemed. My dear Mr. Moon, have I gone mad? By any worldly standard, the answer must be yes. Yet why should the world's standard be accepted? Would not any rational man agree that based on historic observation, those defining rationality are themselves mortally aberrant lunatics? Which great sane philosophy tames and transforms the vicious human heart? Which great sane philosopher was not himself a broken, creeping lump of failure and fear? Tell me if you can, in the history of the world, which intellect bled and died for you and me? Is it not possible that the brutal sanity of heaven stands in opposition to all our minuscule eyes could ever conceive? I long to converse with you on these and many other topics. Among the visions with which I have been afflicted, there are desperate warnings that I have been adjured to give. Should you desire to communicate with me, please address your letter to my solicitor, Mr. Malcolm Dunstan Morville Chase, Esquire, 14 High Street, London. I remain your faithful servant and member of our sacred order, Richard Staunton Samuels. Copy of a letter found in the same envelope. Marin House, New Orleans, 22nd March, 1887.
1: To Mr. Richard Staunton Samuels, in care of Mr. Malcolm Dunstan Morville Chase. My dear Samuels, for all the suffering that you have experienced, please accept my deepest regret. However, may I suggest that perhaps there is a silver lining While the experience of receiving such revelations as yours is exceedingly tragic, your visions on Alamut and afterward are of utmost value both to me and our brotherhood. Rightly have you said that I seek the truth wherever the path may lead. Please then, I beg of you to have no fear. Do not hesitate to come and share with me... All that has been vouchsafed to you, with the confidence that I am both the friend and the defender of those who follow truth. Make haste. I look for your speedy arrival at my home. Most sincerely and with great expectation, I remain your servant, Cornel Moon.